1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I wonder if you've had the, the same experience growing up as I did. You know, it's summer once again, and so the summer blockbusters are playing at Bison 6 Cinema, the Buffalo Mall. And hardly a week went by throughout high school where I wasn't watching the latest release with my, with my best friend. Now, neither of us were movie critics or movie aficionados, uh, but there wasn't really much else for kids to do from farming communities, at least not much else that was just the price of a matinee and some popcorn. But what I came to notice about myself was that the trailers at the beginning, the previews, were sometimes the best part of the movie. And, you know, partially because nobody cared if two kids were talking through the whole trailers, commenting about it, saying, oh, we're going to go see this one next week, next month, next summer, whenever it comes out. But also because we would be able to get a glimpse of the future. Uh, have a little bit of anticipation building up. And sure, some of the previews gave away so much that it wasn't even worth watching the movie, and I'm sure you've seen those sort too. But the best ones left me with this feeling of anticipation. You know, those trailers showed me just enough to assure me that the movie coming out would be worth watching, but it didn't give the whole thing away. In other words, I knew that I would enjoy watching it. I knew that the movie would be good, but I didn't know how it was going to be good. And I, didn't, I did know that I would enjoy spending the $6 matinee ticket price and two hours uh, watching it, though. But my anticipation of a movie is small compared to what Peter's talking about here, of the prophet's anticipation of what God was just giving them the previews of. Because in this text, Peter is helping his readers to understand the majesty of God's plan and stand firm in it, even in the depth of suffering. And he does this by causing us to consider the way Jesus suffered and the glory that he received. And everyone who lives after the gospel has been revealed fully stands in the privileged position of knowing in full the message of salvation that the prophets and even the angels only caught glimpses of. But before we get into all of that, our passage today starts off with a callback to the verse before, when it says, concerning this salvation. So if you just move your eyes up the page, and you'll see that Peter is talking about the salvation of their souls, and that this salvation is the result of their faith, which God is testing and refining 
until it is genuine and pure. And God is doing this through all the trials that these Christians are suffering. So we've got to note, again, as we've noted before, that in the background of all of the letter of 1 Peter is this understanding of suffering as a Christian. And it's not just theoretical. There's real suffering for these Christians, the original recipients of this letter. They were being thrown out of their synagogues. They were being disowned by their families. They were being threatened with death. And this is the first point that I want us to see. Suffering as a Christian is one of the hallmarks of being a Christian. And unfortunately, there are many charlatans who will get up in a pulpit or on a stage today and tell you that your life as a Christian ought to be filled with all the blessings that this world has to offer. And they say, you know, you ought to be healthy and wealthy and whatever else. And if you're not, something must be wrong with your faith. And some of these evil men and women will even offer to sell a blessing to you. They do that by saying, basically, well, you know, your faith, there's something wrong with it, but just prove your faith by donating to my ministry, and then God will give you blessings. I want to be very clear that that's evil and from the devil. Paul in 2 Timothy warns him, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So don't be deceived by people who tell you otherwise. They are the evil impostors that Paul is speaking of here. And Jesus himself told his disciples in John 15, Remember the word that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Peter, the author of this letter, was there when Jesus spoke these words. And Peter was there when Jesus lived out that very persecution on the cross. So he knew exactly what he ought to expect for himself and for all who follow the Master, Jesus. And it's kind of remarkable that it's Peter who says this to us, because Peter was the very disciple who actually rebuked the Lord himself, because Jesus said he must go to Jerusalem to die. Peter said, far be it from you, Lord, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And the disciples didn't understand when Jesus was walking with them. They didn't understand that Jesus came to suffer. The long-hoped-for Messiah was coming to die. And no matter how many times Jesus said this and flat-out said it to them, they wouldn't believe it. And they wouldn't even believe their own scriptures, which, had they understood them, they would have seen that this is truly what was proclaimed. But after the resurrection, we see a change in the disciples. And it's clear from Peter's use of the Old Testament, the scriptures that he quotes in his sermons in the book of Acts, that he gets it. In fact, Peter's whole argument at this point in this this letter 
is centered around the prophecies concerning Christ's sufferings and his glories. And he wants to strengthen the confidence that these suffering Christians have in the gospel. Now, it's easy to think that in the middle of of trials and pain, that you are going the wrong way. Or to suppose that even if you're going the right way, maybe it's not worth all this pain. You think, maybe I should try something different. Or maybe following a suffering Lord is not worth it. But there is no better option. And as Peter is showing us, there is no other option. From the very beginning, all the prophets were clear about the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. They all sought to understand when and how God was going to accomplish his work. And like movie theater previews, the prophets were given some information, but they didn't see the whole story. You know, you don't go into you know, a Mission Impossible spy thriller wondering, oh, I don't know, is Tom Cruise going to save the world? Is it going to end like that? If he didn't, it would be a terrible movie. We know how these films end. We're not really surprised. But what we go there to see is how it all happens. We know the good guys are going to win. We know the couple on the poster for the rom-com is going to get together in the end. We know these things. That's how the story works. What we don't know is how it's going to happen. And the former prophets, they didn't see the whole film either. But they did know how it was going to end. They knew that suffering comes before glory for the Messiah. So, rather than question the gospel because it has a suffering Christ, the recipients of this letter, and we ourselves, ought to see that this has been the plan all along. This is how God works. Suffering does come before glory. But Christ's suffering is so much more than just an example for us. Because Christ's sufferings actually purchased glory. If we just see the sufferings and glories of Jesus as an example of how our lives are supposed to go, we will miss the point. Let's look at this text again. And it says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So what he's saying here is, it's not just a little preview of how you're going to live that the prophets saw. What they actually saw has been revealed in the good news preached to you. They saw the gospel itself. And what the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, revealed to them long ago is the good news that Jesus is suffering on the cross, actually purchased subsequent glory. And don't miss the last line there, things into which angels long to look. 
Angels wanted to know what God was up to, but he didn't tell them the whole story. He reserved that for us. And I want to recognize that this is a difficult text to study because we're so far removed from the original recipients of this letter. They were the first generation Christians. Judaism was a well-established religion, but they were upstarts of this basically new cult. They were suffering great hardships because of their new faith. And I'm sure many of them had to be wondering if it was more than just a flash-in-the-pan religion. And in contrast for us, Christianity is now the largest world religion and has 2,000 years of history exclusive to itself. You can look back on a long line of people who were believers well before you, and there is relatively no issue with being a Christian today. The whole world, in effect, has been shaped by Christianity. So I want you to think about what it would be like, instead of being where we are now, think about what it would be like to be in that first group. While you're suffering on the outskirts of society, in this new thing that seems to be, you know, you, you, you heard the message of the gospel, and you've believed, but there's so many people who seem so against you. And even these people that you've told, they, they think you're crazy. And then, you get a letter from the Apostle Peter. And he tells you that actually you're looking at it all wrong. Because you're not part of some new upstart cult. And you're suffering. And the suffering of your Messiah is not a flaw to your religion. God has been planning this all along. Peter is saying to these folks, pay attention to the prophets. And you'll see that they were always looking ahead to a suffering Christ, followed by a glorious Christ. And they didn't understand how it all worked out. And then Peter lets you in on another secret. The angels didn't understand how it all worked out either. But now God has revealed it. And the question really ought to be on your mind now, and I think it's not, really because we're so familiar with the story of Jesus and his death and his resurrection that we're not shocked by it. But the question really ought to be, how do you get glory out of suffering? I mean, this is just just not how anything works. Underdogs don't win. Weak animals are eaten by the strong. Rome rules because her armies are undefeatable. And if you want to get ahead in the world, you've got to beat it at its own game. And into this world where the powerful rule the weak, the all-powerful God enters to overthrow the most powerful, most despotic rulers, sin, the devil, and death. But he doesn't ride a blazing chariot. He doesn't hurl lightning bolts at the oppressors. He cries, helpless and itchy straw. And he is insulted and pierced and killed by his own people. And because of that, he wins. 
And I want you to hear and understand this. God does not win in spite of Jesus' death. The resurrection isn't some uno reverse card. We can think that Jesus' death is a terrible misfortune, that the resurrection made all better. But when we think like that, we are dead wrong. God wins only and only because of Jesus' death. Had Jesus lived his perfect life and yet escaped the cross, he would have failed in his mission. He could have played by the rules of the world, that power is what matters, and ruled not just Israel or Rome, but galaxies with his godly power. But he didn't come to do that. He didn't come to overthrow governments to set up his own earthly kingdom. He came to remove sin and undo death. And he does that through his death. In the rest of this letter, Peter is going to give us lots of very practical application. But he starts with these 12 verses. Because before we start doing something for God, we need to understand who God is and what he has done for us. So the application out of this text that I have for you is this. Take heart and be amazed at how God does things. Take heart and be amazed at how God does things. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. He chose not to come as a strong conqueror, but as a helpless infant whose diaper needed changing. He chose not to be beloved by all, but rather rejected by everyone. His own people, his own disciples, his own God and Father all rejected him upon the cross. And when his father rejected him, he was rejected and forsaken because he was carrying your sin and mine. And that is the good news. Your sin has been rejected and forsaken by God once already. Your sin has already been condemned and executed in Jesus Christ. Jesus is glorified because by his suffering and his death, he saves his people and he justifies God. This is the thing into which the angels long to look. This question, how can this God who is so just, who can't dwell with sinners, who does not let the guilty go free, how can he be merciful? How can he be merciful to his people who are sinners? And this is how. He did what could be done no other way. God was able both to punish sin and save his people. He was able to look at you and say, I'm giving you mercy, and I'm giving your sins justice. 
He is righteous and merciful. He is gracious and just. And no guilty go free. Because in Jesus Christ, not only does Jesus save us, he puts away our sin. He gets rid of it forever. And this was a mystery that the prophets of old and the angels have not comprehended. But he revealed it to us in the gospel. He revealed it to us at the end of the ages through his son, as Blaise read, through his son, Jesus Christ. We have seen the secrets, the hidden things of God. So we can say with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Who has given him a gift that he should be repaid? Who has been his counselor? No. From God and through God and to God are all things. So to him be the glory forever and ever. Let's pray.